All right. Good morning, everybody. You guys all doing good? Happy Palm Sunday. Yes, it is Palm Sunday. I know we don't talk about it an awful lot. We did last year, and this year it's just been a crazy year, so we didn't get a chance to do anything special for it, but I uh, hope you're all going out and having a, having a Palm Sunday brunch or something, maybe. after. Is that a thing? I don't know if that's a thing. I don't know if that's a thing. But hey, let's, uh, let's get into our message for, uh, for today. We're continuing in the book of Romans, and if it's been a while since you've been here or, or anything, I, wanna, I always want to make sure to kind of take a step back and catch everybody up. So we're working our way through the book of Romans. Again, we call it a book, but it's really, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in Rome just to make sure they're on the same page and they're all theologically going in the right direction. And it's, it's a blessing for us because we get to look at this letter that he wrote to instruct them, to make sure that they're living their lives the right way and really that as a result of what God has done in their lives, that their lives reflect that. Not a life of privilege, a life of like, hey, since you're a, since you're a Jew by, by heritage, you're God's chosen people, that counts for everything you need, so go ahead and just live your life however you want. He goes into really great detail telling people about how, you know, that's great and all that you're God's chosen people. However, we've got a, we've got a part to play in that. And a sovereign God has the right to actually revise his plan and go about accomplishing his will a different way if we're not going to participate. And how it really becomes then incumbent upon us to seek his heart, find out what he has for us, and then live our lives intentionally. Live our lives on purpose, I like to say. And that's our hashtag for the weekend, right? No, it's not. It's something different. It was going to be. Rewind. We'll edit that out of the sound later. Anyway, we, want, we do, we want to live our lives on purpose. How many times do we go through our lives on autopilot, just doing what we do and not really thinking about it? Well, Romans is all about, you know, the first uh, 11 chapters really of Romans is all theology. It's all some pretty deep theology and it's Paul explaining the reasons why God has the sovereign right to do the things that he does. And sometimes things don't make sense to us, but... but he is God, and he has the right to do those things. And really, if we don't understand, what we have to do is not understand necessarily the actions always, but understand his heart. We should really have a firm grasp on his heart. And, and that's what I try to do is, is relay the fact that he is a loving God. He is a loving father who wants the best for his children, so much so that he has made a way for everyone who is just simply willing to acknowledge who he is and receive Jesus into their heart, that they would be rescued from destruction. Because if you're heading down that path of life and you're not living your life intentionally and you don't know Jesus, you are absolutely headed for destruction. And he's made a way for us to all be rescued from that certain destruction. So now, as we start heading into last week, chapter 12, and then as we finish it out through 16... Paul is really going into some intentional, some, some practical ways that we can live our lives as an outpouring of this, of this salvation that God has given us, this rescue from destruction, the fact that we acknowledge that we see and we acknowledge that we've been rescued from destruction should make us want to live our lives differently. This isn't about a list of rules. They've been given the rules. They've had the rules for years, and it really didn't change much in their behavior, right? Right? 
They had several books and they could recite them and they'd been taught them over and over again. It really didn't change much in the way of behavior. And what we see here and what we find out in everything that Jesus ever taught was that it's so much more about your heart. The rules, the laws, yes, those need to be in place, but he really wants your heart. And when he's got your heart, your life is going to be lived on purpose. It's gonna be lived like a life that matters. So that's where we are. This life, living on purpose, all the things that Paul has taught us, especially last week, this giant list of here's the things that you ought to be doing as an outpouring of this in your life, it seems virtually impossible, and it would be in our flesh. The only reason that it's even remotely possible that we can do it is because we have the renewed mind. We have the Holy Spirit in us that allows us then to renew our mind and work towards this, this sanctification, this holy purpose that God has always had for us. And it's only possible if we acknowledge, we receive, and we start practicing living our lives in this renewed mind, this place of, of renewal. And so it sounds pretty easy, but there's some pretty big obstacles to doing that. Some huge obstacles to it, and one of the biggest obstacles, I think, to living our lives as a, as a fully renewed human being, especially with this renewed mind, this renewed way of thinking, is conformity. Fear, but conformity. And, and by what I mean by conformity is that we want to live our lives in such a way as that we don't ruffle any feathers. We want to be able to go to a party, hang out with some friends from high school or go to whatever event that it is and just kind of blend in and not, not ruffle any feathers, just sort of conform. And you may, through the renewed mind, hear that you should share Jesus with somebody. You should stand up for something that you see is not right. You should engage in this way or do this sort of thing. But then we always look at that through this lens of, uh, am I going to be cast out? Am I going to be made fun of? Am I going to be ostracized from this group somehow? And we have this thing called conformity that is a huge hindrance to our living truly in that renewed mind. So much so that if you remember back in chapter 12, when Paul is opening up chapter 12, pretty much after his initial greeting, he goes right into verse two and he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's how he opens chapter 12. And then of course he goes into all the ways that we ought to show that renewed mind, that we ought to be practicing it and living it. And he goes into that. And then he talks about, I talked about, in relation to that, having this compartmentalized life. And conformity sometimes looks like this. You have a compartment over here where you keep your church life, your spiritual life. This is where I read the Bible and I pray and I show, anybody who wants to see that, I'll show them that. And then we have our family life, which looks a little bit different, can be a little messy sometimes. And then we have our work life, a little compartment over here where we keep our work, and that's where we look probably the most together that we'll ever look, right? And then somewhere hidden amongst all these different compartments, we have a little compartment where we keep things we don't want people to see. Some of those behaviors that we know aren't right, those things that the Holy Spirit has shown you isn't right, 
And that can manifest in many different ways. For me, it manifests in this, this, um, this righteous pride. When I look at leadership, and this is how it ties into the message today, I look at the leadership of this country, leadership of our state, of our, any politician basically, and I wanna judge them through what I think they should be doing. And if they don't act right, they don't think right, they don't respond right, they don't say the right things, do the right things, then I feel that I have this right to be angry and to be judgmental about them. Okay, but I keep that in this little compartment and I only pull it out and I show it to Gabe every morning when, when <laughs> I'm watching the news. So she's the only one that knows. And then times like this where I, where I admit that I, that I have that. But you know what the problem with that is? The problem with these compartments, sometimes we lead ourselves to believe that they're not harmful, but they are harmful. Because not only do we hide those behaviors, whatever it is in those compartments, but the enemy hides in those compartments. The devil hides in those compartments. And that's why it's a battle, because you can't keep him in there. You think you can, but he'll pop out and he'll rear his head into all kinds of different situations. And it is a battle to try and keep them down. And you can't do it. You're not gonna be able to do it for any length of time. He will pop out at the most inopportune times and then you'll manifest in some kind of behavior. You're like, where did that come from? It came from this little devil that you're allowing to hide in this box with your other things, in this compartment. And you don't get to choose when he comes out. And it's a battle constant battle to keep him under control, which is why it's so important to eliminate those compartments. Live our life truly as renewed, with a renewed mind, open before God and before everybody else, with nothing to hide, including our attitudes. Because we think it's really easy to hide our attitudes, but it's not. It's not. So when we go through Paul's very last instruction, chapter 12, the very last thing that he tells us, verse 21, he says, just in case you're wondering if all this list is really a, about a battle or what it's about, the very last thing he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. After all this instruction on how to live a life in response to what God has given you, he says, do not be overcome by evil. Putting a big exclamation point on it, this is a spiritual battle. And we fight it all the time. Evil often gains a foothold and sometimes wins these battles. We know evil doesn't ultimately win the war, but he wins an awful lot of battles. And sometimes he wins these battles because we're afraid of confrontation. We can see, we have the renewed mind. We have the mind of Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, which will testify to you what is good and pleasing and perfect, and you know right from wrong, and you have no excuse to not know right from wrong. But what the problem is, is that we see wrong, and we don't want to confront it. How many times have we seen stories where people see horrible things happening on the streets some crime, and they don't want to get involved. I don't think that this is a whole bunch of people who say, not my business, Let, they probably deserve it, let it happen. 
I don't think there are many people that think that. I think there are people who say, I should get involved. I should do something. And then equally as loud, there's a devil in their head saying, don't, just stand back. Who knows? You might get yourself in trouble. You might get yourself hurt. They might just turn on you if you try to help. You don't know what the story is. You don't even know who's at fault and who you should help and who you shouldn't. And all the, like so much noise that you're paralyzed. And you just sit and you watch something horrible happen right in front of you without engaging at all. This is how the devil works in our lives. We don't want to to have confrontations. It's human nature. We don't want to have confrontations. There's a quote I found, which I have always loved this quote. It's by a guy named Edmund Burke, attributed to a lot of people, but that's the first one who kind of put everything together. And it says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Heck yeah, that's marching orders for me. That's something I can get behind. I like to consider myself a good man, right? Like, honey, grab our, grab our uh, picket signs. I'll get the megaphone and we will go out and we will confront this evil head on. I'm all about confronting stuff head on. It's easy if you're given orders like that and it says, just confront evil, okay? That's not a biblical quote. The Bible tells us to be aware of evil, to do battle with evil. It never says march headlong in and every single bit of evil that you see is your battle. It doesn't say that. In fact, what it does say, there's another quote that I found. This one says, live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. That was this guy named Paul who wrote that all the way back in chapter 12 last week. How do you live in harmony and confront evil? How do you live in harmony and not conform to the world and be okay with confrontation, be okay with standing up for what's right. That's a hard thing to do. How do you stand up for good and still live in harmony? Stay with me, because this is what we're gonna talk about today. This is what Paul talks about. So before we get into this week's teaching, I have a question. This question's for everybody. Let's say you go to a gathering. We'll call it a party, but it could be anything, a gathering with friends, family, high school reunion, um, whatever it is. These people aren't your immediate family. They're people you kind of sort of know, and your whole goal is really just to sort of blend in. What are the two most polarizing topics that you could probably ever talk about? Politics and Jesus. Politics and Jesus, probably, I I think 90% of us said the same exact thing in one form or another. Politics and Jesus are the two most polarizing things you could talk about in any setting. So, let's talk politics and Jesus. Let's talk about that. I think we're in a safe place, right? I think we can talk about this. I mean, let's talk about politics. As a Christian, okay, and for the sake of this, we're going to assume that we're all believers in Christ, and if you're not, the concept is the same thing. Are we called as Christians to engage in politics or not? I hear yes. I heard a couple no's. To what level? 
are we just supposed to vote and that's our engagement? Are we supposed to run for office? Are we supposed to be active? At what level is a Christian called to engage in politics? It's hard to know, right? So let me ask you this question. In politics in general, referring to politicians, the human beings specifically, are they evil? Are they the enemy? You guys are smarter than our group last night. I'm not disparaging them. I'm just saying you guys are more caffeinated. It's, it's. Let me ask you a question. So if politicians are, how about this guy? Anybody know who that is? That's Pontius Pilate, one of the original politicians, right, that we hear about, doing things that maybe he wasn't even fully behind because his constituents wanted him to do it. Is he evil? Okay. What about this person? Okay. Everyone's got an opinion, right? What about this next person? All right. All right, how about one more? Now, everybody in this room is all over the place. There's no right or wrong, right? It's where, it's where you feel led to engage. I don't want to sit here and say one's right, one's wrong, one's good, one's evil, because that's not what we're called to do as Christians. Are we supposed to love and honor and respect all of those people? We are. That's our job as Christians, not to judge, not to think we're better than them, not to think we're smarter than them, and if they just listened to us, everything would be better. It's easy to do that, though, isn't it? It's easy to have this self-righteousness inside of us that thinks if they would just do things the way we think they ought to be done, things would be so much better. It's easy to say that. Here's what Paul says. This is how he opens up chapter 13, and this is our first scripture for the day. Romans 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Is there any gray area in there? Any wiggle room? Any, yeah, but. I don't see any wiggle room in that. But seriously, Paul, could Paul have known how depraved and uneducated and self-serving the politicians of today could be? Could Paul have even understood that? It was 2,000 years ago, a simpler time. It was a simpler time. They didn't have, they didn't have 24-7 news cycles. They didn't have uh, a platform where they could get their message out with just you know, tweets and, and Instagram posts. Paul couldn't have understood any of that, right? So let's talk about that. Are things worse today than they were back when Paul wrote this letter? When Paul wrote that phrase, submit to authorities, end of story, no wiggle room, no gray area, 
Were things better for him? Let's do a little exegesis. Remember, exegesis is taking a scripture, pulling it apart, and starting by looking at who wrote it, when did they write it, what was going on? In other words, what was the mindset of the audience that he was writing it to? And why was he writing it to begin with? Let's do a little exegesis on this. And we're going to start by just who wrote it. Okay, the Apostle Paul wrote it. He wrote it. He wasn't in Rome. He wasn't, this isn't a transcript of a speech. He wrote it from somewhere else to this church because he heard some things were going on. They were going through some issues and he needed to help them clarify what was going on. That's why he did it. When Paul writes this, Anybody know who emperor in Rome is at the time? Nero. It's a guy named Nero. We all have these warm and fuzzy feelings about Emperor Nero. When you hear that, you're like, good guy, right? You remember that from history class? Yeah. Just the opposite. Emperor Nero was a special individual. Keep this in mind, though, because when Paul writes these words, submit to your authorities. All authority is placed by God. He's writing this to a church full of people who are living under the rule of Emperor Nero. He's writing it to them. So it's not like, hey, I've heard this guy somewhere else is terrible, so let me teach you a general concept of how to deal with guys like this. He's teaching people who are gonna walk out of the room and immediately be in risk, be at risk, be in danger. So let me tell you a little bit about this. Some highlights of Emperor Nero's rule, in case you think like, uh, maybe he wasn't all that bad. Let me tell you some highlights, okay? Number one, let's go back a little bit. Two emperors prior to Nero was Caligula. Okay, another warm and fuzzy kind of guy, right? Caligula, Caligula was murdered in 41, ought 41, 041, probably by Emperor Claudius. They don't know for sure, but probably by Emperor Claudius. Claudius ascended to the throne of, to being emperor. Now, Claudius was Nero's stepdad. So Nero's stepson uh, rules, you know, kind of, lives in that society for about, I think it's about 12, 13 years or so. We'll do the math later. Um, until one day, Claudius finds himself poisoned by mushrooms and dies. Okay? Poisoned by mushrooms and dies. Now, who ascends to the throne but his stepson, Nero? Nero is now emperor. His very first act as emperor is to say, you know what, we're spending... We're spending too much money on the people. We need to keep more of this in-house, in the Roman government. So what I'm gonna do, my very first act, is I'm gonna re-mint all of the coins of the entire realm. I'm gonna bring them all in. I'm gonna cut them in thirds, and I'm gonna re-mint them. So same value, but, or the same denomination, but it's only a third of the size. And his idea was, well, we'll just keep that in Rome, and. The people can trade with it just the same. But he tips his hand when he has them stamped. You know, they always put their, their image on their coins, right? That's one thing emperors all did that. Well, his image was him and his mom. Him and his mom together. Which, of course, then lends, lends uh, 
rise to this rumor that he was having an affair or sleeping with his mother, which legend says it's true. And that's why he poisoned his dad. Okay, so this is how he gets there to begin with. He poisons his dad so that he can be with his mom, immediately reprints coins with the two of them on together. Very shortly later, though, he murders his mother, and he murders his first wife, and he also then murders his second wife, openly, in front of everybody, has it, and he says they were plotting against him. Okay, so... If that many people are plotting against you, it's probably you. Just a little, <laughs> just a little PSA for y'all there. But so one of his dreams, one of his dreams was to build what's called a golden palace. He wanted his glory to be manifest in all of Rome. So if you visited Rome, remember Rome was the most important city in the world at this time, over a million in population, kind of a cultural center. Rome was it, right? And so he wanted, in the, right in the smack geographical center of Rome, he wanted to have a giant monument to him that he called the Golden Palace. This was his, his dream. And so to get this golden palace, he had to collect all the gold because he literally wanted to build this palace out of as much gold as he could possibly use to build this monument to himself. The problem is, smack dab in the geographical center of Rome was this structure called Circus Maximus. Circus Maximus, kind of picture Pepsi Center, right? It was a place where people came and hung out and they, they listened to politicians and they had, they had all kinds of things going on. It was kind of a cultural center, sort of an important thing. And he couldn't just, just knock it down in order to build his palace, not without openly seeming to be not caring. He wanted to be a, a warm and fuzzy man of the people. That was kind of his goal. But so what he said, how can I do this? So what he does is he goes down into what, was, what we would refer to as the basement of the Circus Maximus and starts a fire. He probably didn't do it. He had somebody do it. He burns down the Circus Maximus. The problem is, is that fire departments aren't quite what they are today, and it ended up getting out of control, and it burnt down a huge chunk of Rome. You ever heard the saying that Nero fiddled while Rome burnt? This is where this comes from. Okay, now he, he was an artist and a musician and maybe he was actually fiddling during that, but basically the idea is that he really didn't seem to care that this was happening, probably because he knew eventually he'd get what he wanted. He could build his castle or his uh, palace right there. So, huge chunk of Rome burns down and he turns and immediately points the finger at Christians to blame them, Okay. He's got to pin it on somebody so that it doesn't get back to him. He can then build his palace and actually have people back him doing that as a monument to, to him. The Roman historian Tacitus actually talks about this. And I'll just read it to you. Last night, I filled in the blanks of some detail on this. I'm not going to do that because Gabe was like, wisely. Gabe's like, it's a little too graphic. But I want you just to listen to how Tacitus documents what Nero did. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. 
This is how he's persecuting Christians, okay? And he immediately went into this to blame them for what he had done. Now, to, he starts building this golden palace, and in order to do it, he, well, he needs more gold, right? So a couple things he does. He confiscates all the golden idols and statues and everything that, that anybody has, regardless of whether they're pagan religions or Christians or wherever they are, confiscating all the gold so he can do that. Now, he uses his influence as emperor of Rome to go to Greece during the Olympic Games. Now, he's not an athlete. He's an artist. He, he can sing. He can, play, he can play instruments. He can act. So he goes there, and he convinces the Greeks, I'm sure strong arm, a little twisting behind the back, to, for the first time ever, add performing arts as an Olympic event. Okay? Acting, singing. Now, to this day, the record still stands. Emperor Nero took home a, a world record at the time and still today, 1,800 gold medals <laughs> in these Olympics. In fact, one story, he did decide to compete in one actual event, a sporting event. It's a chariot race, okay? Legend has it that when they sounded the trumpet and the chariots took off, Nero wasn't paying attention and he fell out of the chariot and the chariot finished the race without him. Winning, strangely. Another gold medal for Emperor Nero. After all this, um, we know that Paul was martyred. Paul was martyred in um, what they document as roughly May of 67. And then Nero committed suicide less than a month later in June of 67. That was the reign of Emperor Nero. That's the guy... Paul's writing about when he says, submit to them. Now, why do I go into so much detail about Emperor Nero? It's interesting. It's kind of fun, right? I hope you found it interesting. But I do it to help remove the lie that somehow our rulers today are worse, different, more depraved. He couldn't possibly have known the things they're doing now. No, he knew that and more things we could never imagine as human beings that somebody would do to someone else was happening there. And still, Paul says, submit to them because they're placed by God. Do we think we have it worse than they had it? I wanna remove that thought. Anything that we can use, more accurately, anything the devil can use to help us justify our lack of showing love for someone we don't agree with, I wanna remove that. As Christians, we are called to love one another and not just one another, but everyone. It's easy to see one another as the people in this room and go, yeah, but they, we're not called to have any kinds of distinction there. Paul teaches about this. He's talking to those who would still kind of argue this. One more scripture, Romans 13, 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Two things about this. First of all, again, it's very clear. Not giving you a lot of wiggle room. Let me explain a couple words. Number one, the ordinance of God. We look at an ordinance and we're thinking um, of a law right, whoever opposes the law of God. That's not what that means. The ordinance of God, think it's short for the word ordained. God has ordained those in leadership, and that's the root of this word in Greek. 
God has ordained those to be in leadership. It was his choice, it was his plan, it was his will. And so for those who oppose God's will, they will receive condemnation upon themselves. The word condemnation, again, we think of it in a Christian context. I'm gonna be condemned by God, I'm gonna be condemned somehow. Condemnation in this context, the root of that word, translates as to be sentenced by a magistrate. It's, it's man's justice. So in this, he's saying, if you oppose those who God has ordained to be in places of leadership, you will be subject to their justice. So for those of you who think that we're above the law somehow, okay, now we have a separate set of laws that we also need to adhere to. But we're not called to set aside or belittle or somehow be outside of man's law. We are called to submit to man's law. And we are called to submit to their judgment and punishment and discipline when necessary. God has put structures in place to protect us from evil. And government, for the most part, you can think what you want to think about government, but it restrains evil at many, many levels. And government is there for us. It's not to hold us down. It's not to punish us. God has ordained it to help protect us. And the leaders are there to help protect us as well. So this is where we are. So that's what that means, the ordinance of God, the condemnation. Remember, when he's talking about this, he's not just saying good Christian leadership, good Christian authority, good people who believe as I believe. He's not saying that. He never makes a distinction. All authority. And then in Romans uh, 13, verses three through seven, he goes on by saying, if you, if you do these things, if you render tax to whom taxes do, if you render uh, respect, if you, if you render honor to those to whom it's due, God will bless you as well. Okay, so he goes on to give us some benefits. If you, if you honor and you give to those what is due them, you will be honored and blessed as well. Give everyone what they are due so that evil has nothing to hold over you. Not only fearing punishment, but to have a clear conscience. But more important than that, to deny the devil a hiding place in a compartment. This little compartment of hatred and disrespect that we feel somehow entitled to keep for those in leadership. The devil's gonna hide in there too. And if you wanna deny him a foothold in your life, you need to close that compartment and not live like that. After all this, okay, Paul gives us kind of his therefore. Like knowing all these things, therefore, do this. And here's what he says. Romans 13, eight to 10. Uh, we've got this. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet and if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. 
All right, let's go back one screen. Really quick, remember that when it's in all caps like that, that's referring to Old Testament scripture, okay? In this case, uh, a lot of it's from Leviticus. And then, of course, the small, that's what, that's what Paul is teaching here. And it's important to know the word neighbor, okay, is used three times in this section right here. Okay, it's used uh, once in the Old Testament, down here at the bottom, and then twice in what Paul is writing. You would be tempted to think of the word neighbor in those cases as the, as the same thing. This is why it's important to really study the word and see what it says. Because we would think, okay, my neighbor is the person that shares a fence with me. My neighbor is the person that is in this room, fellow Christians. That's what we would think of as neighbor. But there's a depth of meaning there that we miss. The first one in verse nine, down at the bottom here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus. Okay, that was given, that bit of law was given to the Israelites as they were wandering through the desert as a tribe of refugees, right? A group of refugees. That phrase is given to them, love your neighbor as yourself, and that word neighbor translates into the Hebrew as the word reya. And reya means literally this, friend. It just means friend. So, you shall love your friend as yourself. That doesn't seem super hard. But what that means, we're all refugees traveling together. The chances of us running into another civilization or somebody outside of our little band of Israelites is probably slim, what we're trying to do in this case is he's trying to teach you live in harmony and peace with one another. They're not even talking about the outside world, Gentiles, anybody else. They're just talking about us. That's what that translates to. Now, you look back up above where Paul is saying, okay, in verse eight, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. That word neighbor is translated in Greek because it's what Paul is writing, and that word Greek translates as plesion. Plesion. I probably butchered it, but that's close. <laughs> and that word translates it this. It means literally this. Any other man, irrespective of race or religion, with whom we live or whom we chance to meet. So in the first case, he's just saying, just, just live in harmony with those around you. Paul is teaching, just like Jesus teaches us, that it's more important than the letter of the law is the heart behind the law. And the heart is, get along, love everyone you meet. Everyone. Not whether they're believers, not whether they're the same race as you, the same economic status as you, they look like you. Love everyone you meet. Jesus says that same, that, that same idea here in a different word translated in Luke 10 when he's talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, it's the same translation and that's how we know, how we know that Jesus teaches the same concept. It doesn't matter who they are. They're another human being. They are God's children. They are God's creation. Therefore, your job is to love them, not to judge them. Okay, so that gets the, the whole word neighbor is, is not the loophole that we're looking for. If, we want to, if we're looking to maintain our little compartment of judgment, 
It's, not, it's certainly not neighbor. Maybe it's the word love. Maybe love will give us some clue. Love one another. Okay, what does love mean? Let's look at love. In verse eight, love, we see that word translated in Hebrew and Greek translates many different ways. In this case, it's agapeo. Okay, you've heard of agape love. This is agapeo, just a different tense. And it means to love, to wish well to, but most importantly this, to take delight in the pleasure of. So it literally means you are delighted in the pleasure and the well-being of someone else. That's what that means. You love someone so much that you're literally delighted that they're having a good day, that they're having a good time, that their well-being is taken care of. So where else, if we're looking at other scriptures where that same tense, that same uh, version of the word love is used, there's an, I, I found it, I had to Google it. It's really kind of an obscure scripture. Uh, it's in the book of John, chapter three, verse 16. <laughs> and it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That word love translates exactly the same way as it does in that scripture. God delighted in the pleasure and the well-being of you so much that he gave his one and only son for you. We should have that level of love for everyone we meet. Everyone we meet. That's hard to do. The unconditional pleasure and the blessing of others that caused God to give his only son for you is what we are literally commanded to show to one another. Big one another, anyone you come across. There's no more time to indulge in being prideful and having compartments and saying, I'll just keep that down there because it makes me feel good and self-righteous when I can pull out this judgment and point fingers and say, they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't, what are they thinking? There's no more time. We need to live our lives on purpose, like it matters. And living your life full of righteous anger and hatred and judgment is not living your life like you have been rescued from destruction. Paul goes on to explain how urgent this is. Romans 13, 11, 12. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The armor of light. What is the armor of light? Truth, grace, love. That's our armor. And that's all the armor we need. Lay aside the deeds of darkness. In other words, don't partner with what the devil wants you to do. The devil wants you to keep those compartments. He's more than happy to help you find things to stuff in those compartments. But he's gonna be in there too. So our response, our response to something like this, do we avoid politics altogether? No. Do we engage in politics? And if so, to what level? How do we know? How do we know where this line is? We have, thankfully, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will answer that question for you. 
Because not everybody in this room is called to engage in politics, but some are. I'm, I'm passionate about politics. I follow it, but I don't, feel, I don't feel that it's my place personally to engage in it openly. But you may feel different about that, and that's perfect. But if you feel called to engage in politics, whether you feel called to engage just by commentary, which is what I like to do, or actually go out and be engaged in it, our job is to do it in love. Honor those who disagree with you. Love those who disagree with you. Respect those who disagree with you. Lift them up in prayer. Bless those who disagree with you. Because we can just get rid of the word who disagree with you and put who are human beings. Because that's our job. And so our response at whatever level of engagement in the politics of the world you feel called to do, do it with love. Do it with honor. Do it with respect. That's our job. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start heading up. Paul says, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is what will help us stand against the lies of the devil. And this is where our choice lies. Are we gonna partner with the things the devil wants us to do, judgment, pride, anger, or the things of light, which is love, honor, and respect? You can disagree. You can see evil where it is. You can pray against it, but we need to do it with love, knowing that we have a sovereign God and he's the one in charge. They can say anything they want, have the hugest desk, the nicest office, but God's in charge, amen? So I wanna close this message by doing something that I think we probably don't do often enough as a corporate body. We have a small group called Heal Our Land. It meets twice a month. Uh, Carol Edwards, I don't think Carol's here this morning. Um, but this group is all about, they get together and they pray for our leadership. Pray for the leadership of this country, of this state, of this area. They just pray for them all. And that's what our response ought to be. If you're interested in that, you can get with Gabe or get with myself and we can hook you up with that. It's twice a month. Um, but I think we should get together right now, corporately, Let's lift our leaders up in prayer. Let's pray for God's direction, God's wisdom, because that's ultimately our response as Christians, right? So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are sovereign. You are the creator of heavens and earth. You are the creator of our very being, everything that ever was, everything that will be. And God, you have placed leadership to protect us. And so Father, first of all, we repent of ever living in judgment over any of those people, thinking that we know better than your sovereign appointment. We repent of taking that upon ourselves and of any hatred, of any dishonor, of any anger, of anything that we have placed on those in leadership that you have ordained, Father, we repent of that. And Lord, we lift them up, all of the leaders, all over this country, all over this world, no matter where they are, God, you have placed them. And so we lift them up. We lift them up in prayer, and we ask that your blessing, your wisdom, 
your guidance and your hand of protection be upon them. We ask for your protection for their families, for blessings, for happiness in their households. When they go home at the end of the day, whether we've agreed with their decisions or not, when they go home at the end of the day, let it be a place of sanctuary and comfort and safety. Blessings for their children. Blessings for generations of children. But Lord, we just pray more than ever that your hand would be upon them to guide them. That your wisdom would find root in their minds and in their hearts. And they wouldn't do things based on the fact that um, they want votes, but they would follow your leading. Whether they know you or not, we know that you can guide and you can lead and you can influence. And Father, that's what we pray for. That your voice, whether they recognize it or not, is gonna be the one they hear. And that your leading is gonna be the one that they follow. Lord, cleanse our hearts of anything that doesn't belong there. Help us to eliminate and crush these compartments that we have put, uh, that we've hidden things in. Help us to get rid of anything that is not from your heart and that goes for actions as well as our thoughts. Let our hearts line up with yours and help us to love everyone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we go into communion, I think most of you know how communion goes, but at the crosses, we've got juice and bread and gluten-free crackers. You can just dip it in and serve yourself. Gabe and I will be up here. We have wine and bread and the crackers, and we would love to serve you. Let's do it, though. This is Palm Sunday. Next weekend is Easter, where we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection, and I'll, I'll talk more about it in the message next weekend, but it accomplished so much for us. It accomplished, among other things, the Holy Spirit in us, by which we are not just blown about at, at completely defenseless against the things that come at us. We have victory in Jesus Christ through what he did for us. And let's celebrate that as we take communion today. Amen. Thank you, church. thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've a tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. Searching for answers Far 
stand out just the voices declare this from your heart you're a good good father